This is the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the show for real estate investors, stock traders, and business owners. We help you keep more of what you earn and protect what you've built. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to Tax Tuesday. Uh, we're bringing tax knowledge to the masses. I, I'm Toby Mathis. And I'm Jeff Webb. And uh, we're here today to answer a bunch of your questions and to answer a bunch of uh, questions that we have that you guys emailed in. So we're going to dive in today. We're from our Summerlin location. If you don't recognize the backdrop, it's because there is none. It's just a big <laughs> white sheet of paper, but uh, it gets the job done. So uh, simple rules of Tax Tuesday. There's chat and there's Q&A. We have folks on to help you. I, I, I heard Ian and Troy and Elliot. I know we have others that are there to answer your question. You can put that into the Q&A. So if you have a specific question about your scenario, put it into the Q&A. Otherwise, just ask us and comment via chat. Somebody says only one minute late. That's, we were not late. Maybe, maybe one minute. But anyway, if you need a detailed response that's really specific to your situation, that is not going to be answered in a in a simple Q&A, you need to be a platinum client. Then you ask it via your platinum portal where somebody will respond to you in writing. We like our accountants to answer those questions in writing because you'll ask the same question next year, more than likely. And we want to make sure that there's no question that we answered it and B, that you know what the answer is because sometimes memories or interpretations get foggy. So we like to put those things in writing, but you can absolutely do that if you're Platinum. So anyway, this is supposed to be fast and fun. Jeff, are you ready? I'm ready. Hey, and the reason we were a minute late was we were letting the excitement build for your return to Tax Tuesday. It's all anticipation. Yep. All anticipation. Have I been gone for a while? Think about that. Maybe. You've been gone. Have I been gone? I don't think we've done it together in quite a while. No, I was looking. It's been like six weeks. But Wow. I've done a couple with Elliot. I think you have, I've too. done a couple with Elliot. Yeah. Anyway, we get it done. So, hey, Jeff and I are back together again. <laughs> hey, let's talk about the opening questions. What is the best strategy for hiring your kids? Just don't do it. I'll just answer. No, I'm just kidding. What's the best strategy for answer, uh, for hiring your kids? I heard create a management solo proprietor. How is a dynasty, quote unquote, dynasty set up so it is not taxed at the estate rate after the death of the creator? Are both the trust and the beneficiaries taxed in any year funds are distributed? So we will answer those. Those are good ones. Oh, I didn't even ask you guys where you're from. Why don't you guys put that into chat? Just give us an idea where you're from. There's Anacortes. I was just in Anacortes last week. Santa Monica, D.C., Kansas City, Raleigh, Claremont, Miami, Florida, Somerville. Oh, my God. Round Rock. Now they're just coming in too fast and furious. How many people we have? Uh, a lot of y'all. New York, Kapolei, Hawaii, California, Newport Coast, Clinton, North Carolina, Virginia. Got, you guys got both coasts covered. Ventura, California, PA. I grew up just outside of Philly. Vancouver, Canada. I was there as well about a week or two ago. Nashville, Baltimore, Maryland, and sunny Miami Beach. And there we go. Virginia Beach, Texas. We got people all over the place. All right. So we have a good group. Somebody says we're outside of Philly in media. If if you guys know where that is, there's Maryland, Orlando, but we have a good segment of society here. We have a good sampling, I guess is the way to put it. So uh, we got a lot of folks. I didn't see any foreign countries this time. If you're in a foreign country, 
put it into chat. All right, let's keep going over our questions that we will answer one at a time. But here's what the questions are. All right, I have substantial credit card debt and private debt amounting to $120,000. I own a few rental properties, currently own six long-term incomes and two Airbnbs. Two properties are mortgage-free and one of the current long-term tenants wish to buy the property. All right, so they're asking opinion here. Should I sell and pay off consumer debt? Should I own or finance? If I sell and own or finance, can I avoid capital gains? So we'll get into that one too. We want to sell some stocks to pay off some debts, but we know that if we do, we're looking at a huge capital gain. Huge! What can we do to lessen the tax that we have to pay on the capital gain? So we'll go over some of your options on that one for sure. Is Anderson Advisors training recommending to have an operating agreement that allows the non-pro rata and discretionary authority to make distributions on irregular time frame amount for multi-member LLC. How do we deal with yearly taxes in this case? Good questions. What options are there to save money on taxes if you own an LLC? Can passive income be used to fund a retirement account such as a solo 401k? Again, good questions, we'll answer that. I'd like to take advantage of section 179 before the end of the year and buy a business vehicle. Can you talk in more depth about section 179 and how depreciation and bonus depreciation work? Also, what kind of vehicles qualify for this? Oof, few more, and then we'll dive in. What is the best way to get money from my entity, a C-Corp, while limiting the amount paid in taxes personally and as a corporation? We should ask the Trump organization because apparently they were just convicted. They were just convicted. 17 charges. So they were doing some stuff, but we'll see what happens. If my bill will be over $500,000, what can I do before the end of the year to reduce this? Excuse me, if my tax bill will be just, just your tax bill. Now, just get in mind that that's somebody who didn't make 500000 but they're going to pay 500000 <sighs> First world problems, right? Mm-hmm. I'm looking to attain... Two or more rental properties within the year. So is it better to create an LLC for each property or take title under my current S-Corp? I have an S-Corp retail classification that I'm look, that I'm considering dissolving. Should I just reclassify my S-Corp as real estate investment and take title in the name of the S-Corp? So we have some really good questions. Today, We've got, those are some, well, a couple of little advanced ones and then mm-hmm. some bread and butter. But- if you want to dig in and find specific answers to your tax questions, one of the best places you can go is my YouTube channel. Anderson has a wonderful YouTube channel that you can go check out and take a look at all the different videos on different topics. I think I've published two a week. And while you're at it, visit my partner's Clint Coons. He does a great job going over asset protection and a lot of strategies as well. So, while you're here, sign up for a couple of YouTube channels for free and you'll get lots of tax knowledge to your box or into your inbox. And here's the really cool part. We record all of our tax Tuesdays and put them into YouTube. So if you wanna see what we've been up to, if this is your first time, welcome. And uh, you can always go into watch some of the old episodes, listen to them, however you wanna do it, podcast or on YouTube. And you can see the type of stuff that we do. So here's the sampling. What is the best strategy for hiring your kids? I heard create a family management solo proprietor. Well, the the best strategy for hiring your kids is have gainful employment for them. 
you got to have something that they're doing and what you're paying them for. So to just create a family membership sole proprietor that's not really doing a whole lot ain't going to work. Now, if you're running um, real estate brokerage or something like that, or any number of things that would be if they're a sole proprietor, and there are tasks that you can give the kids to do, uh, depending on their age, then you could certainly hire them at that time and pay them an equitable wage. Now, here's the deal. If you're under 18, Mm -hmm. your kids are under 18, you do not have to pay withholding taxes, old age disability survivors, the Medicare, you don't have to do the, the withholdings or the social security. Correct. Which means I can pay my kids and if I'm paying them less than $12,950, it doesn't matter whether they're my dependent or not. I don't have to do anything. They don't have to file a tax return and I can deduct that payment so long as it's payment for actual work that they do. And, and that's generally true of sole proprietorships and partnerships. partnerships right. They, but not S-Corps and C-Corps. Because S-Corps and C-Corps don't have kids. So if if... The reason I see this solo proprietor and it's sole proprietorship, but whatever you want to call it, the reason that you see that being used is because quite often, let's say mom has a business that's an S corp or a C corp, dad and son or dad and whoever the kids are, are on the outside. Sometimes dad will set up a sole proprietorship and say, you know what, we're going to be the marketing company for mom's corporation and you enter into a regular agreement and you pay that sole proprietorship and that money is being used to pay the kids. So let's say that it's making, let's say you have two kids and it's in that business is making, let's just say $24,000 a year. The business would only have to recognize if it pays it all out to the kids, obviously it would have zero net income. So there'd be no taxes owed. If the $24,000 was paid equally amongst the two kids, Neither one would have a tax return that they would have to file. Neither one would have a tax liability, but both kids would have to be under the age of 18. And you just have one of the parents basically being the business. You could set that up as an LLC disregarded to the parent, or uh, in theory, you could also have that be a partnership between the mom and the dad, even in that situation where you have the mom having the corporation. That's why I think that's popping up. Now, what Jeff said is 100% correct. If you pay them directly from an S-corp or a C-corp, then you just have to pay them through payroll and you will have withholding, which isn't a bad thing, in my opinion, no. because you're paying into Social Security. They're going to get their benefits then at some point. So you have to meet so many quarters. Remember how many quarters you have to pay into Social Security before you qualify for benefits? I want to say 10, but I'm not sure that's correct. I think it's a lot more than that. I'm not 100% certain. Maybe we have some internet sleuths out there. 40, there we go. So I think it is, I think it's like 40. So it's uh, 10 years, right? But if you don't have with, if you're not paying into social security, then in theory, you haven't paid in, you don't qualify, yada, yada, yada. So this, there is some benefit there. The other benefit there is let's say you want to put the entire $12,000 into a Roth mm-hmm. 401k or a Roth vehicle. You can't do that via the the IRA, you're limited to $6,000 a year. So if you wanted to take the entire amount that you were paying your child, you wanted to get it entirely into a Roth 401k, you could, if you're using a corporation, you, and it's it's uh, 
You can't if you're using a sole proprietorship or a uh, partnership under those circumstances. Now, if your kids are over 18 or you're hiring a parent or another relative and they're over the age of 18, then all bets are off. You have to withhold their um, social security. They, they have to pay social security, even if you pay them. You can pay them as a independent contractor if they're doing certain types of work, or you can pay them as an employee, run it through payroll. But uh, you lose the ability to pay them without paying into social security if they're over the age of 18, or I think it's 18 or over. I think you're correct. I think it's 18 or over. So 17, 16, 15, 14, 13, 12. There's there's court cases where even nine-year-olds were getting paid. Uh, as long as they're able to do something mean, uh, worthwhile, you can pay them. Even if it's just being, hey, maybe you have a plumbing company and you have your kids posing with the plunger and the and a wrench. Like They have to be able to do something where you you could pay a third party to do it. So if you could pay actors or whatever it is or models, you could certainly pay your own kids. Uh, as well. In fact, that's the the nine-year-old case was a, they got paid Screen Actors Guild's rates. Any advantages to hiring grandkids? Same thing. So uh, Sam, if you had your grandkids, it's the same scenario. I believe that if they're related to you and they're under the age of 18, you don't have withholding or do you have to do uh, social security if it's grandkids? You know? I'm not sure about that. Mm. I can I can see the logic behind it. I just haven't ran into that. But same scenario. There's a way to get it over to an organization, you know, to a company that then pays the kids. There's a way to get it over there. If it's your if it's your business, then you just pay the parent solo. Now I'm saying it sole proprietorship, have the parent pay it all out to the kids. The sole proprietorship zeroes out. The kids don't have to report the income or pay uh, file a tax return. So very good tool, especially if you're paying for somebody's tuition. Fun stuff This is one of my favorites. Ones, by the way. So I'll read this. How is a dynasty set up so it is not taxed as an estate at, at the estate rate after the death of the creator? Are both the trust and the beneficiaries taxed in any year funds are distributed? What do you think? I have no idea. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, this is the fun stuff. So if I am setting up a dynasty, when you say dynasty, you just mean something that's going to be for the benefit of the for the family for a long period of time, right? So if I have assets and I pass away, I have to worry about the federal estate tax. I have to worry about state estate taxes too. Like in the state of Oregon, yours is only a million bucks. So anything over the estate exclusion is taxable. And the exclusion in the federal world is over $12 million. I forget. Do you know the exact? It's like 12.2 or 12.4 or something like that. It's a big chunk of money. So if your estate is over $12 million, you got to pay attention. You can always give a spouse unlimited amounts, by the way. You don't have to worry about that. But if you want to benefit your kids and your grandkids, et cetera, it's going to go into one of two vehicles. If it's a trust, one of those vehicles is an irrevocable trust, which can become irrevocable when you die. So it could be a living trust that then becomes irrevocable. It is not going to be taxed at the estate level again, unless all of the assets are distributed to a child or to one of your beneficiaries in which case then it's part of their estate. Otherwise, if it's just sitting in trust for health, education, maintenance and support or specific things like, hey, I want you to travel internationally or the money is there to help you invest and do matching funds on properties that you buy. If you set something like that up, then any income is gonna either be taxed at the corporate level or it's gonna be taxed at the beneficiaries level if it's distributed to them. 
So when you at when you say are both the trust and beneficiaries taxed in any year funds are distributed, the answer is probably not. If you're distributing all the funds or the income, this is much more important because the funds. If I just own a bunch of stock and I don't sell any, there's no income. There's no tax. So a dynasty trust, is that normally an irrevocable trust? It usually starts, yeah, it's going to be an irrevocable trust, okay. and it's going to fall into the category of what complex or simple, right? Okay. So so the dynasty trust then versus the living trust, dynasty trust is going to be taxed on its income every year. But it can start off as a revocable trust during your lifetime. Okay. And then triggering so an event, it, I die. it ends up being an irrevocable trust, like a yeah. living trust. Then. Yeah. So okay. I like to set up my living trusts to become into to become dynasty trusts when I die. In other words, a lot of folks are die and distribute people. Hey, I die. I want it to go to my kids. Okay, that's great. But probably not the best thing, especially if you have sizable assets. Because what statistically speaking, you have about a 16% chance of that making it through. Like it's there's not much money that actually gets maintained when somebody gets a windfall. Uh, they usually get bad habits too. So, so let's say we say, you know what, let's not do that. Let's give them some money, but let's give them access to money if they need it instead. And then that's being held in a trust. And uh, there's something called distributed net income. And there's, there's, there's things where you can lower the trust taxation by distributing it to beneficiaries. The beneficiary pays tax as though they got that income was theirs. So would it be typical for a dynasty trust, from what you're saying, that they, they're paying out the income to the beneficiaries, so they're not paying trust rates, which are really high? Yeah, the trust, you go from, you get into the highest bracket after about 12 grand. It's really, but, really bad. But the corpus, the, the body of the assets and all, stays in the trust. Correct. Yep. So the corpus just sits there. Sometimes you rate it. Sometimes you're going to distribute some of the principal under certain circumstances, and it depends on what you draft. Mm. I could say, hey, Jeff, I'm going to leave you money. I'm leaving you a million bucks for health, education, maintenance, mm -hmm. and support. But when you turn 50, you can take 10% of the, the principal. When you hit 60, you can take another 10%. When you hit 70, you can take another 10%, something like that. So I could I could allow you to take distributions that are not just of, of income, but in any case, it's not taxable. But if you take that distribution, it's part of your estate. So then if Jeff passes, it's part of his estate. So that's why if you have large estates, you see a lot of practitioners that are like, hey, don't distribute it because you're just kicking the can to another generation. And now they have to mess with it too. Let's use the dynasty trust, get those monies out. And that way we don't have to worry about that estate tax, which the estate tax, you go over the 12, $13 million mark, and let's say you're single, every dollar is being taxed at 40%. It's, it's like a pretty hefty tax. So if you're a $20 million person, it's the value of your assets, the fair market value on the date of your passing. You're talking about, what would that be? About uh, $3 million in tax. And they don't care what's, what you sell it for. What they care is what it's fair market value. So mm -hmm. even if you sell it and it's not worth enough, you're in deep doo-doo, my friend. So we make sure. So one last quick question. I, I set up my dynasty trust. I'm the initial trustee. I die. Is it usually recommended that the successor trustee is somebody that's not directly associated with the trust? Is not a beneficiary or something? Yeah. Uh, generally speaking, you don't want the beneficiary to be the trustee because if you have restrictions like, hey, we want to hold it in trust, 
that beneficiary may just ignore it and take all the money. Yeah. They might get sued from a future generation, which could happen. The easier way is to say, hey, I'm going to I'm going to use either a trusted party, a fiduciary like a lawyer, an accountant or a wealth department of my bank. That's a professional trustee and say, hey, you guys manage this. If you have somebody that you trust, you do that. The other thing you do is you could put a trust protector in place where it says, like, basically, you need the acquiescence of an attorney or a firm when you make distributions. And they're they're there to enforce the trust to make sure beneficiaries don't do something weird. We've seen it. Hey, I'm going to give you a uh, our house when you hurt, hit 40. And they, you know, and then somebody that maybe they're 25 and they're like, ah, I think I'll just take the house. You know, who's going to stop them? Right. So you got to make sure that you're being intelligent about it. Somebody says, if the living trust owned a holding LLC, which in turns own several subsidiary LLCs in different states, can our trust successors get step up and basis for the LLC properties when we pass away? Yes. See, I'll make that easy. We don't have to get into it. Uh, let me see. There was another good one. My mom had a living trust, which I am the executor of. My mom gets taxed on the note we carry. Oh, you probably did a uh, a, a sale of a business or something like that, probably to a, to a, what do they call that? Oh gosh. It's a uh, irrevocable trust that you set up, you transfer, you sell, mom or dad sells the business or a highly appreciated asset to the trust. They take back an installment note, trust sells the asset. They have no recognition again because their basis is now reset when they did the installment note. That's not and, the deferred sales trust. Yes, that's, a, that's, that's what I was thinking of. Defer Thank you. Deferred sales trust. All right. So they have mom gets taxed on the note we carry when the siblings get taxed as ordinary income on the disbursement. Is there a legal way to reduce the tax? Honestly, no. Like if, if, if you're getting interest payments on a note, <laughs> somebody's going to have to get taxed on it. Yeah. Either the trust or the beneficiaries. Yeah. Somebody says, can you please update the displayed question? I'm reading off of the chat. So let's go to the next one. I have substantial credit card debt and private debt amounting to $120,000. Oh, real quick, time out. I said there's two ways to avoid all the estate tax and to create a dynasty. Number one is the irrevocable trust. Number two is charitable organizations, either a public charity or a foundation that then your uh, heirs can work for. And uh, it's a good way to avoid, like let's say I was in Oregon and I had a $5 million estate. I'm going to get killed in taxes because Oregon only gives me an exclusion on $1 million. So what if I wanted to avoid getting hit with a bigger tax? I could actually have my trust fund a, uh, a foundation or a, a charitable organization. If my kids work for that charitable organization, they can continue to work for it. My grandkids, my great grandkids, everybody could work for that organization and draw a salary. Salary, they don't have a right to distributions outside mm -hmm. of that organization, but I can avoid a big tax bite on that. If I wanted to, it works great. So didn't want to leave that out. All right. I have substantial credit card debt and private debt amounting to $120,000. I own a few rental properties, currently own six long-term properties, I would say incomes and two Airbnbs. That sounds like eight properties in total. Two properties are mortgage-free. So we have six properties that have mortgages and one of the current long-term tenants wishes to buy a property. Should I sell and pay off the consumer debt? Should I owner finance? Or if I sell and owner finance, can I avoid capital gains? What say you, Jeff? I, I think this is actually a good idea to 
pay off some of the credit card and personal debt because it typically comes with very high interest rates, probably more than your your ROI on your rental properties. Mm-hmm. You'd want to know that though. That- yes, you definitely want to know that. Picking which house you sell actually comes into play too. Does it make more sense to sell a mortgage property or a paid off property or on and on? So I, I agree that I would sell and pay off the consumer debt. It's costing a pro- it's probably costing a lot of money. Yeah, and, and so I look at this, and uh, number one, we need to look and see what the rate of their debt is. Mm-hmm. If you have credit card debt that is interest free for another six months, and you have private debt that's at four percent, we may say, hey, 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 hold on, right. So you want to look at that. And I have no idea of the terms of the private debt. There might be a prepayment. Hey, it's a four-year note and you have to pay all the interest to, uh, for the term of the note if you prepay it. It's like we have to know s- certain facts, but I'm with Jeff. Generally speaking, credit card debt and private debt are more expensive than debt on properties. So here's what I would say. Yes, you have the option to sell a property, but the other thing is you have two properties mortgage-free. I might just I might just refi it and pay off my my consumer debt. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, if you got credit cards in the twenty percent ranges that that you owe on, uh, I HELOC one of those properties. Home equity line of credit, take a credit against one. Yeah, and uh, use that money to pay pay down that credit card debt. Yep. Even now, it might be seven percent interest rate on the mortgage, maybe a little bit higher with the HELOC, but it's far better than the high usury rates on the credit cards. Yeah, and there's a bunch of people already saying that. Consider refinancing rental, reduce the rate, pay off the consumer debt. What about mortgage of property, pay off the debt? Yes, the HELOC, they're all saying the same thing. So our internet folks and our responders, uh, yep, they could do a HELOC, I like Jeff's. And you still, it's, if it's mortgage property, if it's not, if it's mortgages on investment property, you get to write off the mortgage interest against the rental income. Yes, you could, Owner finance if you decided to sell. So let's say you said, you know what, Toby, you know what, Jeff, and uh, folks online, I don't want to refi. I just want to sell it. I like my tenants. They're really great. What's the tax ramifications? Technically, you could 1031 that, but you'd have to have all the money go to a QI. You'd have to identify a replacement property, Mm -hmm. and it's going to be a a bit of a dumpster fire. You're going to have to buy another property. So let's just say 1031's off the table. Mm -hmm. What you're going to do is you're going to recognize four types of income when you sell and you do the owner finance. You're going to have return of basis, which is taxed at zero. zero. You're going to have depreciation recapture, Mm -hmm. which is going to be what zero to 25%, depending on your tax bracket. Correct. You're going to have long-term capital gains, Mm -hmm. which is going to be zero, 15 or 20%, depending on your tax bracket. Could be as high as 23.8 23.8 plus your state tax if you make too much money and you're going to have interest. Right. So yes, you could spread it out. Let's say you did that over 10 years. You're spreading out the tax hit over a 10 year period. You're getting a nice little income stream, not necessarily a bad situation. Can you avoid the capital gains on that? No. Let's say that I sell again and I own our finance. I could opt out of installment sale. I could take the entire amount of the gain and I could go into a qualified opportunity zone and defer my gain until 2026. So I, I'm not a big fan in this particular scenario of, of uh, owner financing it because I think it kind of defeats the whole purpose of paying off the personal lines of credit and, pers- and, and credit card debt. 
Yeah, because you, 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 your debt doesn't go anywhere unless the down payment's one hundred twenty thousand dollars, and you find it and you carry Correct. the rest. You want to get rid of that one hundred twenty thousand dollars. All right, what? One more. We have more tricks up our our sleeves. How can we avoid capital gains? Well, this happens to be a great year to harvest capital losses because we've been getting the crap kicked out of us in the uh, stock market and in crypto. So what you might want to do is sell some of your losers and and say. I have unrealized capital losses. Maybe now is the time to take those to offset the capital gains on the property. Just a thought, right? Maybe you're way up. All right. So this is fun. Uh, somebody's asking more questions about that. Credit card trading, credit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to get into that. All right. Somebody says, try consolidating the debt. Somebody else has a credit card trading. Debt. I get it. It gets a little nutty. Not not a big fan of the credit card stuff. All right. We want to sell some stocks to pay off some debts, some stocks to pay off some debts. But we know that if we do, we're looking at huge capital gain. What can we do to lessen the tax that we have to pay on the capital gain? Well, you've already given away my answer with the last question. I I, I certainly have some stocks that are just, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Go back in time and buy some crypto. <laughs> Go back to January and buy a bunch of Bitcoin or something. Then you'll have plenty of capital losses to offset all that gain. So yeah, I I, I sell I sell my losers left and right, mm -hmm. and maybe maybe their whole portfolio is nothing but gain. But I find that hard to believe. Yeah, I'd be looking for the stocks that don't have much gain in them. I sold some off today that I saw weren't going to be going anywhere and had substantial losses in them. Oh, you, this is a nice bloody day on Wall Street. So you exacerbated that issue. Is that what I you're did. saying? We love that. No. So what what can you do to lessen? I'm going to give you another one. And this is the coolest one that you've never thought of. There's something called a security back line of credit. Mm -hmm. So if you have stocks, especially stocks with big gain, there's a good chance that your brokerage house will give you a line of credit against those stocks. They usually give you a, a, a line of credit up to 75%. It might be 70% right now with the volatility in the market. It may be as low as 50%. But you borrow against your stocks, you're generally paying a really low interest rate. Like the last time I looked, it was three, it was still in the threes. So mortgages are 7%. Security back line of credits are still in the threes and fours. Borrow it, pay off the debts and do it that way instead. So I understand that you want to pay off the debts. I love it, but you do need to get your pencil out and calculate how much tax am I going to pay? Would I be better off paying off the, you know, keeping the debt? What's the debt amount? If it's like four, five, six percent, I might just keep it. If I have to pay and I sell, like if I have huge capital gains and I don't know what huge is, but if it's 23.8% that I'm having to pay on long-term capital gains, or if it's 37% because it's short-term, I'm probably not going to do it right now just to pay off debts, but I could borrow tax-free against those same stocks and, uh, and do it. Somebody says, can you borrow against your IRA? No. You can't borrow against an IRA, but you know what you can do? What can you do? Roll it into a 401k and then borrow against your 401k. You can borrow up to $50,000 from your 401k. Per participant, if you're married, you can get up to $100,000 and use that. That's paid back over five years at federal AFR rates, which are currently right around 4%. Yeah, IRAs can't have any type of loans or anything like that connected with them. They yeah. can loan money to others that you just can't borrow yourself. All right, so Pamela, what you do is you set up a solo 401k. You need to have a sponsoring entity, so you need to have a business of some sort, but you can have a solo 401k, roll it into the 401k, 
And then you can borrow up to $50,000, up to 50% of your balance. If you're married, then you could do the, uh, you, you could roll both spouses IRAs into a single 401k and borrow against that. So you can do that. Um, hopefully, uh, somebody says borrow from an insurance policy too. Yeah. Look around for anything you can borrow against. I was using the capital gains. Great point, Mark. I was, I was using kind of like, Hey, I see that we have stocks, so I know we can borrow against that. But the other thing you look at is, do you have any cash value, life insurance, whole life index, universal life, variable, universal life, where you can do a loan against the cash value or even a HELOC would work too. Hey, maybe I borrow against some real estate. So sometimes we're just looking around saying, what's the cost of the debt? If I'm borrowing against my own 401k, it's a net zero because I'm paying the interest to myself. If I borrow against a house, then I have to calculate that debt of that versus the debt that I'm paying off and make sure that the that it makes sense from an interest rate. If I borrow against my stocks, then it's usually a wash because my stocks are, go up statistically they go up even though this year has been different but statistically they go up at the rate if i look at the last 10 years it's, it's over 14 percent. if i look at the last 50 years it's it's right around 10 percent. if i look at the inception of the markets it's around 10 percent. so i factor my gain on my stock against the interest rate i'm actually paying if the interest rate's four it's going to be really tough for you to get hurt over a long term so that stuff works one thing I like about borrowing from a uh, 401k is, yeah, you do have to pay it back with interest, but that interest is being paid back to you, mm -hmm. your account. Yep. I'm good with that. Here's another fun one. Somebody says the Schwab pledged asset line of credit is 3.8 plus 1.9%. Oh, so that's a little bit higher. I know that the Morgan Stanley, because I just was talking about it with, with Gio, one of my my friends and clients, and it was less than 4%. It was pretty low. They were below 2% at the beginning of the year. It's crazy. All right. What else can we do? Let's see. Is Anderson Advisors training recommending to have an operating agreement that allows the non-pro rata and discretionary authority to make distributions on an irregular time frame amount? Question mark. Yeah, can. We don't want to loop you in. For asset protection standpoint, you don't want to force distributions. For a multi-member LLC, how do how do we deal with yearly taxes in this case? The first part of the question, do we recommend it? I don't know that we say that we generally recommend it. We can do it, but... Oh, we recommend it. Do we? I can tell you that. Where you can do special allocations what, throughout it? What we do is we say you're not required to make distributions because if somebody gets a uh, an assignee uh, order, like let's say you get a charging order against an entity that requires distributions on a quarterly basis... You just undid the asset protection. So we want to make sure that we awesome. have an operating agreement that says, I get to decide if I distribute money or not. And if there's two partners, I can give more to you than I can give to this this, this one over here. So like you said, we're talking about a partnership. Partnership. Uh, you're almost always talking about an LLC that's taxed as a partnership in that case. I can't imagine it's another situation because S-Corp, you have to give equal distributions. You can still put restrictions on the distribution of distributions even out of an S-Corp. But here, it's a multi-member LLC, which I'm going to say is a partnership. So we're really only talking about the distribution. So we're not talking about, I'm going to allocate this income item this way and this. No, we're not talking about uh, non-pro rata uh, allocation of income. I don't, I don't think you would actually have a thing like that. But I can do non-pro rata distributions. Y yes, you can do that for non-tax reasons, to do unequal distribute, like if I want to allocate 
losses to one party who has perhaps an appetite to do that. And that's mm-hmm. part of the deal for them to invest. I could do that. But I think what they're talking about here is just, can I do non pro rata uh, discretionary distributions where there's not a forced compulsion? Because I know Clint goes over this and he talks about all the mistakes he sees in LLC agreements, operating agreements. And one of those common ones is you set something up for asset protection, but it undoes itself because it requires distributions on no less than an annual basis of the profits to the partners. If I am a creditor of one of the partners and I can get a charging order against that partner, now I know I'm getting paid. Uh, If I get a charging order against Jeff and he's got an operating agreement where it's discretionary and it can be non pro rata, which means it doesn't have to be equal amongst the partners. Now I'm in trouble because I'm like, what if I get a charging order? Am I just going to be standing there scratching my head for the next 20 years and getting nothing? That's going to force me to become more reasonable in my settlement. But the big question here is how do I deal with the taxes? Uh, the distributions actually have zero to do with the taxes. So if Toby and I make $100,000 in our partnership, whether or not we have any money distributed to us, we're going to pay tax on that $100,000 individually. He's going to pay tax on his half. I'm going to pay tax on my half. Whether or not that money is distributed to us directly doesn't change even how much is taxed. Mm-hmm. At 100%, unless you distribute more than, I'm trying to see where this more than came. More than you have basis. In. Yeah, if I, if I distribute more than you have basis, so if, you know, let's say that you put in 50,000, I put in nothing. And we say non pro rata distribution of profits. It makes a hundred thousand. You could get fifty thousand dollars out tax free. I right. can't if if it distributes fifty thousand to me, I'm paying tax on it because you have no basis. Because I have zero basis. Yeah, and so, but I'm also going to get allocated half of the income. Correct. Fifty thousand as well. So I'm going to have fifty thousand dollars allocated to me. Plus, I'm going to have fifty thousand dollars of long term capital gains. Yeah, and, you know, you see this less often in partnerships. You see it a lot more often in S corporations where they're getting outside loans and then paying that money out as distributions. And mm-hmm. then it turns out they had no basis, personal basis in those distributions. We see that a lot, especially when you have uh, you're not at risk in a syndication mm-hmm. and you have a, somebody who, who put in one hundred thousand dollars in a syndication. The syndicator levers the hell out of that. Mm-hmm. And then they borrow against the the new improved value. Like, let's say they wait, they rehab an apartment building. They pull out more cash than was needed to actually start the project and they distribute it to everybody. So let's say that I put $100,000 in and I get $120,000 back. A hundred of it is tax-free. 20,000 of that is long-term capital gains, regardless of whether there's income from the actual syndication. People screw that one up too, periodically and get either in for a little bit of a nasty surprise the good news is a lot of accountants don't know the rules and sometimes they'll just, they'll miss it and they'll be like, whoops. But if you get audited, you'll be in for a nasty surprise. All right. What options are there, Jeff, to save money on taxes if you own an LLC? Can passive income be used to fund a retirement account such as a solo 401k? I'm going to answer the second question first. Passive income cannot be used to fund a 401k or any other type of retirement account. Retirement accounts have to have earned income mm-hmm. behind them. So if I'm an LLC taxes and as corporation, I'm paying myself a salary. Yep. And that allows me to contribute to a 401k. If I'm a partnership, the income that the partnership makes becomes my earned income if I'm a general partner. 
Same thing with the Schedule C's uh, and the corporation. Well, the corporations are a little different. Once again, you have to have salary again. So I have to get wages of some sort to right. fund a solo 401k. I cannot have solo, I cannot have wages out of a sole proprietorship. So if my sole proprietorship is passive activity, there's no way for me to convert that. If I have a partnership, same rule, right? I, unless I am a, I don't even think if I was a GP of a partnership, if it's passive, it's passive, right? I think. Oh, true. If, yeah. if it's passive income, you're kind of sunk. Yeah. Somebody says my LLC is a teaching business. Okay. So if you're teaching Pamela, then yes, you could absolutely fund a retirement account. The question is, how are you taxed? So when it says, are there options to save money on taxes if you own an LLC, it depends entirely on how that LLC is going to be taxed. So for example, the IRS doesn't see an LLC. They go like this, I don't see you. Tell me what you are. And you're going to say, you're either a disregarded entity, just ignore me. I am a partnership because I have, there's more than, than one of us and, uh, and we don't know what we are. Or you're saying, treat me as a corporation, which could be an S corp or a C corp. Mm -hmm. That's really the, the gamut of this, of, of this case. And they all come with the good, the bad, and the ugly. If you're a sole proprietorship, you're getting no benefit, really. You're getting to write off your ordinary necessary business expenses if it's an active business. So if it's a teaching business, then you're going to write off your, you know, the, the expenses that are part of that teaching business. It, it really comes down to it. If I use something like a cell phone in that business, I have to figure out what's my personal use on that cell phone and how much business use, and it can re it can reimburse me or pay for the business use, things like that. There's there's some benefits. The uh, other option would be an S corp. And an S corp, and by the way, then if I have profit, it's 100% of it is subject to old age disability and survivors of Medicare, which means social security taxes on 100% mm -hmm. of anything of my net profits when I'm a sole proprietorship. If I make my LLC taxed as an S corp, for example, then I get some other options available to me. Number one, if I have net profit, so long as I take some reasonable salary, the profits are not subject to self-employment taxes. So I save the old age disability in, 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 in the Medicare, and that ends up being 15.3% when you actually do the math, because part of it's deductible, it's about 14.1%. So for every dollar that I make up to, what is that, $147,000, I know I'm saving 14% by being an S-Corp. Over $147,000, it's a little bit different. It's 2.9 or 3.8, depending on how much you make that you're gonna save as an S-Corp. But S-Corps also get something called an accountable plan. And it allows us to get a lot more deductions than are necessarily available to the sole proprietors. Like there's lots of different things that are available to you. I would actually suggest that you spend a bunch of time on my YouTube channel because I break down a lot of those differences or you come to our tax and AP class because we get into some of that too. Anything and and going back to your, your cell phone example in the sole proprietorship, if it's in an S-Corp, we don't care what hard is personal. Yeah, the beautiful part about an accountable plan, which is when the employer reimburses you, is if I use this at all for business and it benefits the business, the business can reimburse me for 100% of not just the phone itself, but also all the uh, data and then the, the cell usage. But yeah, so, just, just an example of the consequences of the different entities. Yeah, it's huge. I don't understand. A lot of accountants are like, oh, it's not that, there's no difference. What, what are you talking about? You'd be crazy. All right. Hey, my partner, Clint, 
who's a fantastic asset protection attorney, really knows the stuff around taxes, knows the stuff around legacy planning, wrote another book. It's called Next Level Real Estate Asset Protection. He can help you take your real estate investing to the next level, pun intended. It was number one on Amazon. You can go there and purchase it. Really good book. Highly recommend it. Uh, it just got published uh, in August, I think right at mm-hmm. the end of August. So just a couple months ago. And uh, way to go, Clint, says Sherry. So his mother gave it a rating of five stars. <laughs> so you can be the... No, that was from a long time ago. I should update all the ratings. It's done quite well because it's a really good read. Somebody says, good read, great read for sure. So Clint's mom must be on and commenting in the chat. All right. Just teasing. All right. I'd like to take advantage of section 179 before the end of the year and buy a business vehicle. Can you talk in more depth about section 179 and how depreciation and bonus depreciation work? Also, what kinds of vehicles qualify for this? Jeffrey. So for 2022, we're not going to talk about section 179. It's pretty much a moot point. We'd only talk about bonus depreciation. Even if it's a even if it's a six thousand pound gross vehicle weight? Yes, bonus depreciation still trumps 179. Why would that be? Uh oh, actually I interrupted you. You keep no, going. I'm gonna I, I like to pepper you with questions because <laughs> you're sitting right next to me. So if, if it's under a six thousand GBWR vehicle gross vehicular weight rating. Your limitation is $19,000, uh, $19,200, I think it is, of depreciation in that first year. And that includes bonus depreciation. Mm-hmm. If it is over 6,000 pounds, then your bonus depreciation is pretty much unlimited. Mm-hmm. So here I am, I'm going to buy a car and my accountant says, oh, you should buy it in your company because we can write it off 100%. I'm going to go buy, you're going to, you need to buy a big vehicle like a Suburban or a G-Wagon or a Tesla mm-hmm. X, something that's got a gross vehicle weight of over 6,000 pounds. And they tell you, you can write the whole thing off. Just put it into service, buy it, put it into service before the end of the year. Is that true? Uh, then we need to start talking about business use. We had one, uh, Ian, who is answering questions, got this from a client of they purchased a quarter of a million dollar vehicle Mm -hmm. for managing real estate. And my immediate answer was, oh, heck no. Quarter million dollar vehicle, which means it was a G-Wagon, by the way, because that's about what they're going for. Technically, you could write it off, but if it's real estate, it would still be would it still be passive? It would still be passive unless he's qualifying as a real estate professional. And I don't know if that's the case. You think it would be seen as an unreasonable expense? What, but you'd have to be using it 100%. You'd have the to full be, deduction. Correct. You'd have to be using it 100%. There's Ian. Uh, he says, yeah, he's a real estate pro. So, so it's ordinary loss. It's like any other business. <clears throat> it makes you uncomfortable. because it, like, it makes me uncomfortable because it sounds more like I bought a personal use car to put in my business. So that's the thing. So it all comes down to, are you actually using it for business and what percentage? Because if I buy a quarter million dollar car and I'm using it hundred percent for my business, yeah, I can do that. I can write that puppy off hundred percent uses for business. But if I have personal use, it's either going to lower that amount or it's going to make a taxable event to me because that's no different than the company paying me wages. Somebody says, what happens if you use it 50%? That's the magic threshold. Mm -hmm. It has to be greater than 50% usage to take 
the big fat bonus depreciation. If it drops below 50%, you stand to lose not just the deduction, but you might have recognition of the money that you already used or you already depreciated. You may have to recognize that again, right? Yeah, the depreciation rules say if you use it less than 50% in business, you can only use the straight line method, no accelerated methods. Yep. Which means if I took bonus in that first year, used it 100%, in the second year, I went to 49%. I actually have to go back and recapture that bonus depreciation. As ordinary income. Correct. This is where like all you realtors out there that say, ha ha ha, I'm going to drive it for the end of the year and I'm only going to use it for personal. And then you're like, you get tired of being a realtor because the market dropped and now I'm driving it around and you say, I'm not going to keep track of my miles. Like my, my accountant's annoying me. They keep wanting to see my mileage log and all that fun stuff. And then you go below. Now, like you say you did a quarter million dollar deduction. Guess what you're recognizing in the following year? A quarter million dollars. Mm-hmm. So I took the loss in 2022 and I'm recognizing it all back in 2023. So, ah, somebody says... So if my LLC does property management for my wife's sole LLC, I could get a Ferrari, but it's better to get a fully loaded pickup truck. You could get a Ferrari. You only can write off 19,000 bucks. Right. That's it. Like That's why they have these depreciation restrictions. A Ferrari is not going to meet the gross vehicle weight test. So you'd be able to write off 19,000 out of the $300,000 that you paid for a Ferrari or more, whatever it is. And you talked about, if you use it personally, it's compensation to you. And that mm-hmm. compensation is going to be based on the value of that vehicle. Mm-hmm. And they actually give us a, a, a test every year. They publish a, a table that says, here's the lease value of the vehicle mm-hmm. for inclusion into your income. So, Correct. so somebody's asking a good question. I have two cars. It doesn't matter how often you actually drive the business vehicle, so long as it's only driven for business. Is that a fair assessment? So they have two cars. Correct. One that they drive personally, one that they only drive for business. And what if they only drive that car for business for 5,000 miles a year? Yes, 100% business usage means whatever you paid for it. If it's over the 6,000 gross vehicle weight, you can write that off. If you're bonus depreciating it, it means you can write it off. It's 19, it's 18, 19,000, right? The first year. Yeah. And then it drops a little bit the second year. I think it might actually go up a little bit the second year. Anyway. It's, it's kind of a funky schedule. I was looking at it yesterday. Um, oh, no, you're right. It would go down the second year because would, bonus is gone. Bonus is gone. It goes to 80% next year. Right. And then it goes to 60% the following year, 40% the following year, then it's gone. Um, the other side of that coin I wanted to talk about was, wouldn't you only have one vehicle and it's your business vehicle? That almost is a failure every time. You have to have a personal use vehicle. Yeah. So if you have a car and you're saying it's 100% business use, you better have another vehicle that's 100% personal use or they're not going to believe you. If you have one car and you got to track your mileage. So I'll just tell you, I use something called Mile IQ. I always always show my phone and that's my wife. So don't get (laughs) mad at me. Like I'm not doing anything naughty here. Uh, But you go to the Mile IQ. It's just a little app. And what it does is it tracks your GPS and then it says, was that personal or business? It knows when you stop and it tracks all of your trips. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, you could say personal, I think personal is left and business is right. But you're just like, if they see that you drive in the same location over and over again, like between your house and and an office, they're going to say, is that a business trip? And you say, yep. And then uh, forever, it'll always track that as business mileage when you drive between your office. 
we could get we could just talk about vehicles all along because when you buy a vehicle, you have two choices. You could do the actual expense method or you could just do the mileage reimburse method. My recommendation for almost everybody, just reimburse the miles. Right. 62 and a half cents right now. And it doesn't matter the ve- the value of the vehicle, which vehicle it is. You just have to, like, if I have three cars, now I'm not worried. Hey, I'm using them each. I'm going to drop below the 50% on this one. I'm going to drop, oh, this one's right at 52%. I can't drive that one anymore. You know, all that weird stuff. It just goes out the door. Even if I drive one for 10% for business, I'm just reimbursing the miles that I put on it. All right, enough of that. Fun for those of us who missed the Tinder boat. See, the accountants are sitting there going, I swipe left, I swipe right. And they're all, I'm like, what are you guys doing? Are you guys doing Tinder? And they're all like, no, what's Tinder? Smile like you. I think that was Jeff. All right. What is the best way to get money from my entity, my C-Corp, while limiting the amount paid in taxes personally and as a corporation? Repay your shareholder loans. <laughs> um, that is the best way to get money out of your C-Corp if, if, I, if it already owes you money. I would say there's another way. Okay. Reimburse yourself oh, for yeah. expenses that you incur that benefit the business, like cell phones, computers. Medical. Medical, dental, vision, if you have a C-Corp and you have a health reimbursement plan. Startup expenses. Anything that you do that benefits that business meals. I go sit with Jeff and we, we, we talk about business, hundred percent deductible. Let the corporation reimburse you. It is not reported to you and it's not taxable to the corp. And there's always the famous corporate meetings in your home. Meetings. 280A. 280A. The Augusta rule. 14 days a year or less. I can write off. I can just pay yourself from the corporation you don't have to recognize it anywhere. You're not writing it off anywhere. It's tax-free. It's exempt. It's not taxable under your adjusted gross income. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to include it. And the corporation takes a deduction. What, what would you put that as meeting expense? I usually put it in as corporate meeting expense or something like that. Mm-hmm. Just don't get crazy with it. Somebody's asking about Clint's book. Will it be available in at the Las Vegas event this weekend? Yeah, we have a live event coming up Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I'm sure that we will have some. Oh, sorry, but it's not. But I can have one sent to you if that would. Patty, why don't we have boxes and boxes of Clint's book? This is insanity. We don't have any of Clint's. Oh, is it because Forbes published it? I'll see what she says. I cannot believe that. Yes. All right. So, yeah, you should see if we can't get some boxes from Forbes. Or they'll give us them. Yeah. We need to have Clint's book here. They should ship us a bunch of Clint's books because everybody will buy one. Next one. If my tax bill will be over $500,000 this year, what can I do before the end of the year to reduce this? My first thought was with this kind of tax, you're talking about a lot of income, maybe a million and a half. Mm-hmm. So my first thought was, is this coming from an entity where you could possibly do a defined benefit plan? Yeah, that's that's a good one. Defined benefit plan. What is that, Jeff? Uh, that is a retirement plan. Um, it's not like the 401ks, which are a defined contribution plan. Defined benefit plan, they'll let you to put them to anywhere to two to $300,000 away into your retirement account based on your salaries. You, you look at what you've been making over the last few years and actuary says, how much would you have to have in your retirement plan for you to continue to receive that when you retire? And so it's a factor of how old you are, how much you've been making, and assumptions that the actuary makes on the growth of that money plus inflation, and they come up with a number. Usually it's a range. 
And yeah. like Jeff said, it could be two, 300,000. We have a client putting in over $700,000 a year into their defined contribution plan. It's deductible. That's number one. So look at retirement plans and advanced retirement plans. What's number two? Normally, I would go with a cost segregation at this point. But if you don't already own property, it makes it very difficult to accomplish. Mm-hmm. What else you got? Charitable donations. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. I, I can write off up to 60% of my adjusted gross income by making contributions to charity. If I don't have cash on hand and I, I could give appreciated assets up to 30%. So if, if this person's making 1.5 million to, to get this tax bill, you could give up to $500,000 of appreciated assets away and write them off. You could also do a conservation easement. Like if you wanted to buy into a, a a investment where they're going to conserve the investment, you get to write off the fair market value, the difference between the basis, your investment and the fair market value of what w- would have been worth had you developed it. Uh, it's usually four to one to five to one. So if I donated 200,000 there, I would get a 800,000-ish deduction. I could do that. I think that's I think that's capped around 50% of your adjusted gross income. Um, that one's ta- capped at 30%. 30% for yeah. conservation easements? All right. So yeah, we'd want to take a look at it. Obviously, you want to have your... your, your uh, but if it goes over 30%, it carries over from year to year until you use it up. You got five years to carry forward for sure. The other thing you could look at is uh, you'd look at your business, you'd look at your assets, you look at accelerating depreciation. You could look at oil and gas, like you can do an oil and gas investment. And what they do is the investment is considered, what is it, uh, intangible drilling costs? Intangible drilling costs, yeah. And those are treated as ordinary loss. So you get, usually you get about 80% of the investment as a deduction year one. You might have time to do that this year. So let's say you made a half million dollar uh, investment, you could get about a $400,000 tax deduction. Is there any sense in investing in a syndication or something that may be taking large deductions that not unless you're a real estate professional That's what I was thinking. yeah so if you're a real estate professional it opens up the the old adage for us is if you're paying taxes and you are you're a real estate investor then you don't own enough real estate there is the limitations on some of the losses that you can take what is that called um the oh the act of there's there's a restriction on how much loss you can use against your other types of income. Oh, okay. So I think that if you're married filing jointly, what is it around five hundred thousand? Yes. So the, so we'd have to use a combination of those things to get your taxes down. The good news is when you're that high at tax and you have a five hundred thousand dollar tax bill, you're at least the thirty seven percent rate. So almost everything we do is going to save you thirty seven cents on the dollar. So if you do an investment in oil and gas, it's not just hey I got to I. I have this great investment. Hopefully it's a good investment, but I'm also getting a 37% return today because of the deduction and the, uh, the, the, that you're making. I want to go back to the charitable uh, donation mm-hmm. because I think when we say charitable donations, people think we're, we're donating to Ronald McDonald house or something like that, but you could donate to your own charitable. Yeah. Well, what you could do. Yeah. You could set up a, like if you're working with us, for example, if somebody says, Hey, I want to set up a charity. We're really close to the end of the year. We would use a donor advised fund. Anderson has a donor advised fund. We would dump money into the donor advised fund that would roll eventually into your charitable organization. Let's say that I, I have a heart for affordable housing. So I'm going to set up an affordable housing nonprofit or I care about veterans. And so I'm going to set up a veterans support group or veterans housing. 
or, you know, you, you, uh, amateur sports. Uh, I'll use uh, Aaron Adams. He did a, a volleyball league and a, a volleyball nonprofit that, that ended up building about a $2 million structure. So he donated about 2 million bucks into it. So you get these huge deductions and it can be for something that, that you're going to control. So again, it's kind of like the right pocket, left pocket thing. I can, sometimes I can move money from my right pocket into my left pocket and get a deduction uh, now for it. Now, if it's in a charity, there's a taxable event for me to get it out of the charity. I'm going to have to work for the charity and pay myself wages. My experience is that 99% of the charities that we set up, they're not taking a salary. What they're doing is something good for society. And it's a one-way road. Money goes into the charity and uh, people love to do the charitable activities. So that works. It's a great way to create a legacy for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, somebody says, did he mean fire? No, actually a, a buddy of mine, Aaron Adams. Uh, which he'll tell you, he says it all the time, so it's not confidential, but uh, set up a, uh, uh, actually took a girls team in Idaho Falls. He coaches a high school team that would, hadn't even made the playoffs. And I think they were, uh, they were either like number three or four in the state, did a fantastic job, but he lives and eats and breathes that stuff. So if you like that type of activity, amateur sports is actually a nonprofit activity, helping animals, science, education, uh, anything that involves uh, feeding or housing the poor or uh, marginalized groups can can qualify, and uh, and you can absolutely do it. We don't have a link to a donor an Anderson Donor Advice Fund because we only do it for clients that are actually doing the nonprofits. But we can park your money as long as it's going to go to your Anderson setup nonprofit. All right. Otherwise, you could use a typical donor advice fund that goes to other charities. But just know that the donor advice fund doesn't have to give it to the charity that you designate. That's always where it gets fun. Here's a good one. I am looking to attain two or more rental properties within the next year or so. Is it better to create an LLC for each property or take title under my current S-Corp? You just made my heart skip there. I have two S-Corp or I have S-Corp retail classification that I've considered dissolving. Should I just reclassify my S-Corp as a real estate investment and take title in the name of the S-Corp? Jeff. Since this company was already in existence doing something else, I, I do not favor this at all. Also, it's an S corporation, so you would at least have to revoke that S election. Yeah, don't do it. If you revoke the S election, you're going to be a C corp. It's even worse. So, yeah, I, I I dissolve this one if you really want to dissolve it and form a new LLC that's um, maybe a partnership or even disregard it to yourself if it's just mm-hmm. you. So the recommendation is to set up an LLC for each property, unless you're in the state of California or Florida, then we might use trusts instead. But for the most part, the best practice is to isolate each property. It depends on how much debt is on them, the value of the properties and the value of your other assets. But generally speaking, it's going to be to isolate those two rental properties. And you do not want to create adverse tax consequences. You put it into an S-Corp and you take that puppy out to refi it or to take the property out and move it into a different LLC. That's a taxable event to you. The appreciation is taxed as wages to you. It could be a nasty tax situation. You do not put rental properties into an S-Corp unless the benefits far exceed the disadvantages. Hey, guess what you can do? You can always go and sign up for the YouTube channel and watch these types of videos all the time, including we'll be putting these ones, recording of this Tax Tuesday in there as well. So you could absolutely do that. If you have questions in the meantime, send them in to Tax Tuesday at Anderson Advisors. 
That's where we grab the questions that we answer every week or every other week. But you will get answers no matter what if you send those in to Tax Tuesday Anderson Advisors. You can also visit us on our regular website at andersonadvisors.com. Some of you guys asked about the tax and asset protection events. You can absolutely get information there as well as on TaxWise, the nonprofit events that we hold. We do a lot during the year. I think we do about 50 events a year. So there's lots of opportunities for you to engage and to learn. It's a ton of fun. Somebody says, love this, guys. Haven't joined in a while. Thanks for joining us. It's much more fun for Jeff and I when people are on, and it's not just he and I looking at each other. Although, that's that's, that's not horrible either. Jeff, you're easy on the eyes, my friend. All right. That is it. You guys are awesome. Until next time, I'm Toby. And I'm Jeff. And this is Tax Tuesday. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 